Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. Uh, there's a painting in our prayer room, and I think it'll be going up, uh, that was painted by Jessica Chance Antonio, the daughter of Neil and Becky Friesen of our church, as well as the daughter-in-law of Connie Chance Antonio, who's also on staff. And uh, it's just a powerful picture, and uh, we thought it would be a, an appropriate picture uh, for this particular message entitled Surviving Struggles and Storms. Now, the reason, uh, at first I just had surviving storms, and then I thought, well, if I say surviving storms, then people are going to, uh, they're going to disqualify themselves. They're, go- they're going to say, well, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not really in a storm, so this doesn't really apply to me. But actually, this applies no matter what. To what degree your struggle is, uh, because it varies through life. There are certain times when it's not as much as, uh, as uh, at other times, but there are some of you, and I know you by name, uh, and I'm sure I don't know nearly all of them, uh, that are in the middle of a real storm. Some of you would venture to say you're in the midst of a perfect storm. Uh, where you have the convergence of a number of issues happening all at the same time. And that's what this message is about. Now, I use the word surviving, but I'd like to suggest that we can even thrive in the middle of storms. And uh, so while I called it surviving, I would f- go as far as to say thriving. Last week, uh, Chris spoke on cri- breakthrough prayer, and using Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 to 10, he mentioned that that you pray diligently about something until God shows you otherwise, and that's the point. We continue to live in a world of death and struggle, and even when we press in and press in and press in to pray, not all, not all our struggles go away. In fact, some of you are thinking to yourselves, well, <laughs> that's great, now we're pressing into struggle, but I've lost a loved one, and I've lost this, and I've lost that. I can't even undo some of those things. And now I've got this storm raging inside. So how do we, how do we reconcile all of that? Because what, uh, what he spoke on last week is absolutely uh, true. Uh, we need to keep praying. And he said, you, you pray until God shows you something else. And, and so we're going to relate to some of that uh, this morning. Let's bow for a word of prayer. And then we'll begin by looking at the story out of Mark, uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. Father, we thank you for this time of uh, wonderful celebration in your presence. And Father, even this morning, again, uh, we, uh, we were thinking, had thoughts, even had conversations. I wonder what it's going to be like to sing in heaven. Uh, just to be in your presence, and we, and we, and we experienced that this morning. Uh, not just something intellectual, but where your spirit is truly present and we sense it. And we thank you that you give us just a, just a whiff, just a touch, a piece of heaven. We praise you for that. Now, Father, we've, uh, we've been talking about prayer and pressing into prayer. And uh, now, Lord, we're looking at the other side of this coin and recognizing we still live in a world of death and decay. And we ask you to help us to engage our minds, our intellects, as well as our hearts 
with what you have for us this morning, and we want to thank you for what you're going to do as we say yes to your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, and everybody agreed by saying, in Mark chapter 4, it says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, and the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This story takes place on the Sea of Galilee, about uh, 700 feet below sea level. 30 miles to the north is Mount Hermon. If, uh, for those of you that have been there, I've been there. Rising 9,200 feet high. And the cold mountain air rushes down and meets the warm air rising from the Sea of Galilee and creates these tremendous storms. They get most of their winds during the afternoon and such. So much of the sailing and much of the fishing takes place in the evening and even at night. Uh, that's what they were doing. And so this storm must have been incredible for experienced sailors as they were. They thought they were going to die. Frantically, they woke the master and he spoke a word to the wind and wave. He said, quiet, be still. Just this quiet, firm authority. I don't believe he yelled. He didn't have to yell. He could just whisper it and the waves and the wind would obey him. That's it. That's all he said. Like a compliant child, both were instantly calm. I mean, not a breeze, a perfectly glassy sea. Jesus doesn't say, in the name of, be still. No, he didn't say that. He just says, be still. And the storm obeys. You see, Jesus doesn't just have power. He doesn't just have power. He is power. Just like God is love. He created the wind and waves, and so he has complete command of them. Now, the word afraid there comes from the Greek word dilos, meaning timid or cowardly or fearful. The word terrified that you see in that uh, passage comes from the Greek word phobos. It's a different word, a meaning alarm, frightened. Note also that there's an adjective describing the fear or alarm. The Greek word megas, meaning greatly, so that together it means they were greatly frightened or terrified. Now, think about that what, that, what that actually means. That means that before Jesus calmed the storm, they were cowardly or fearful or timid. They were fearful. But after Jesus calmed the storm, they were absolutely terrified. Is there something strange about that? Before Jesus was awakened, the boat was nearly swamped. They couldn't bail fast enough. There was just seconds before they were going to drown. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And there's a note of rudeness and disrespect in the way they were saying it. Don't you give a hoot? 
Don't you give a care? Can't you see what's happening and hear you're sleeping? That's what they're, that's what they're saying. We've all felt that at, this, at some point in our lives. Everything is going wrong. It's a perfect storm. And Jesus, or God, is asleep, absent, and certainly unaware, apparently, in our lives as to what's going on. Then Jesus calmed the storm and responded. Did he say, I totally understand how you feel? Is that what he said? <laughs> oh, I get it. I totally understand. So sorry I was sleeping in. No, he didn't say that at all. Instead, he asked them, why were you so afraid? Cowardly. Why were you so afraid? Can you imagine what the disciples are thinking when he's asking that? I mean, what do you mean, why were we so afraid? We were afraid that we were going to drown. We were afraid you didn't love us anymore, because if you loved us, you wouldn't allow these things to happen to us. Ah, that's what's, what's, that's what's going on. But Jesus' answer has this thought behind it. Your premise is all wrong. You should have known better. I do allow people to go through storms. You had no reason to panic. Now, if they had no reason to panic during the storm, they certainly had no reason to be afraid after the storm, did they? Yet Mark writes that after the storm, they were terrified and asked each other, Who's this? Even the wind and waves obey him. Why were they more terrified in the calm after the storm than in the storm? Well, not only did he, Jesus have power over demons and diseases, they had come to know that. Many people had seen it. He could cast out demons and heal people of diseases. But this was a different sort of matter. He commanded the wind and waves to stop calmly. Two phrases, and it's all done. They suddenly became aware that the God of Israel, or Yahweh, was literally in the boat with them. That was an eye-opener. Who his real identity was unveiled before them. And that was shocking to them. In the Old Testament, when people were confronted by deity, it produced similar responses. For example, when Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord high and, uh, high and lifted up or exalted, sitting on his throne, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And when ancient saints encountered deity, they shuddered in, his, in the presence of his holiness. And what they knew that they deserved. That's why they shuddered. Deep down, each of us knows that our sinful lives deserve eternal justice from our Creator. Isn't it true? There's something gnawing in us. We don't like to think about God. We try to dismiss those thoughts. 
Because deep down we know that if we acknowledge it, two doctors, a husband and wife, were uh, witnessed to by what was formerly my pastor many, many, many years ago. And he confronted them with the claims of the gospel. And at the end of it, they said, we choose not to believe in God because if we do, then we, have, then we will be accountable to him. Do you see what I'm saying? Deep down, we know. I thought that was one of the most honest answers that I've heard in some, when somebody is being a witness to. So while they were fearful before the threats before the threats of the storm, before the holy creator of the universe, they were terrified, knowing, that, uh, knowing what just deserts their lives actually deserved. They were in fear and terror of the threat of both, the storm on the one hand and Jesus, Yahweh, on the other hand. That's what's going on here. But there's a huge difference between the two. There's a huge difference. A storm doesn't love you. Nature is going to wear you down and destroy you. Even if you live a long time, eventually your body will give out and you'll die. I've seen it in the mirror. And maybe it will happen sooner through some disaster. Nature is violent and powerful and it's going to get you sooner or later. You say, yes, that's, that's true, but if I go to Jesus, he's also not under my control. He lets things happen that I don't understand. He doesn't do things according to my plan or even in a way that makes sense. I pray and I pray and I pray a certain way, and then he goes and he does it a different way. And it doesn't always make sense. But if Jesus is God, and he is, then he's got to be great enough to have some reasons to let you and I go through things that we don't understand. His power is unbounded, as we've seen in the story and been talking about already. But so is his wisdom and his love. Nature is indifferent to you, but Jesus is filled with love for you. The disciples had asked, don't you even care? And that sets up the remainder of this story. But if the disciples had really known that Jesus was both powerful and loving, they would not have been so fearful. And if they had really known that he loved them despite their sin, they wouldn't have been so terrified. But of course they didn't, no. He had come to save them, not condemn them, as the Apostle John said. Their lack of understanding of God's love was the common thread that resulted in both fears. Their premise that if Jesus loved them, he wouldn't let bad things happen was wrong. He can love somebody and still let bad things happen to them because he is God, because he knows better than they and we do. Something unusual happens to us in our response to this particular story. I mean, the disciples always seemed to screw up, didn't they? 
Is it true? I mean, we, we just chuckle. Jesus says he's going to the cross. We read it after the fact, so it all makes sense to us. Peter's looking at it from the other side of the, you know, from the other angle, and he's saying, oh, no, you're not going to the cross. Or something like, Lord, you're not going to the cross. That, that's quite a statement. Lord, you're not going to the cross. I wonder who's Lord there. I mean, they're always doing crazy things. And we chuckle as we read the stories. But not in this case. In this case, when we read the story, we sympathize with them. There was a storm. Jesus was asleep. They're about to sink and die. Jesus must not love us. And that's how we feel. He woke up and said, if you knew how much I loved you, you would have stayed calm. That's impossible, we think. Because we're not that calm in the storms of life, are we? Now, here's two things that will help you survive, perhaps even thrive, in your storm or in your struggle. The first one is, Receive Jesus' love in your storm. Now, we have something, the disciples, and we've been talking a little bit about the love part already, but we're going to now expand on it a little bit. We have something the disciples didn't have. We have a resource that can enable us to stay calm inside no matter how the storms rage outside, and here's the clue. Mark has laid out this account using language that is almost identical to the famous Old Testament account of Jonah. And, and a number of uh, commentators have seen that. Both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat, and both boats were overtaken by a storm. The description of the storms are very similar. Both Jesus and Jonah were asleep. In both stories, the sailors woke up the sleeper and said, we're going to die. And in both cases, there was a miraculous intervention, and the sea calmed Further, in both stories, the sailors then became even more terrified than they were before the storm was calmed. Two almost identical stories with one, at least one, key difference. In the midst of the storm, Jonah said to the sailors, in effect, there's only one thing to do. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you will live. Jonah 1.12. That's, that's basically what he was saying. And, they, and so they threw him into the sea, which doesn't happen in Mark's story. Or does it? I think Mark is showing us that the stories aren't actually different when you step back and look at them with the rest of the story of Jesus in view. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus said, one greater than who is here? Jonah is here, and he's referring to himself. He's saying, I'm the true Jonah. <clears throat> he meant this. Someday, I'm going to calm all storms and still all waves. I'm going to destroy destruction, break brokenness, and I'm going to kill death. Amen. Amen. Are you happy about that, church? <laughs> oh, that excites me. That moves me. But how can he do it? Jesus can only do it because when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly like Jonah into the ultimate storm 
under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death and judgment by the Heavenly Father. Just like it says in Jonah that God hurled a storm, that's what it says, God hurled a storm upon Jesus. And he was cast into the ultimate storm. He was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of eternal justice. Remember what we were talking about? They were terrified because of who, they, who was in the boat with them, and suddenly they felt exposed. Suddenly they felt unclean like Isaiah. No wonder they were terrified. The eternal judge of the universe was sitting in the boat with them. They knew what they deserved. But they, what they didn't know was that this Yahweh, this Jesus, this eternal judge who was sitting in the boat had not come to condemn them. He had come to be hurled into the sea, the ultimate storm, so that they would be saved. Is that good news? Church, is that good news? That's incredible news. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can sink us. The storm of eternal justice of what we owe for our wrongdoing. The storm wasn't calmed, not until it swept him away, as Jonah was swept away. If the sight of Jesus being thrown into that storm is burned into the core of your being and mine, you and I will never say again, God, don't you care? We'll never say it. If we keep that in view, we'll go... He went to that kind of length for me? How could I ever say, and I have, how could I ever have said, God, don't you care? I remember a time. I was so angry. And I took one shoe off, and then I took the other shoe off, and I threw it across the room. And what I was saying was, God, you don't care. If I had only had this picture burned into my mind and my heart, I would have never done such a shameless thing, shameful thing. God, don't you care? And if you know that he didn't abandon you in the ultimate storm, what makes you and I think that he would abandon us in much smaller storms that we're experiencing right now? Amen. I'm just going to uh, give a couple of examples, and I'm going to, I'm not going to, I, I could give some examples of, you know, more in the storm kind of stuff, but I'm going to give examples more out of the struggle side, so that everybody, uh, so that we can all identify. I remember a time um, when I had, uh, I was pastoring here, but I'd become extremely exhausted, just physically, mentally, emotionally, just completely spent so spent that at a breakfast, I was trying to, with my wife, I was trying to eat, and just this ball of emotion erupted 
and I just sobbed. My wife held me for about five minutes. It's just a struggle. That's not a storm. <laughs> I told you I would tell you on the struggle side. And, um, and I, I went to work, and for the, over the next couple of days, a thought kept reoccurring to me, recurring to me, Isaiah 40, 31. That's all I would get. Just, I'd be working, and Isaiah 40, 31 would pop up. Now I'm like, well, I know that verse. I've memorized that together with a bunch of other verses. I know that. That's just me thinking about Isaiah 40, 31, which is um, a very famous verse, right? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, and so on. You see it right on the screen. And uh, I struggled for several days, and then one day, uh, someone gave us a photograph uh, that they'd mounted on, they'd got mounted on, a, it was, it was, it's a big picture, it's hanging in our home, of an eagle, and it's taking off, and stenciled on it, these people had no idea what I was going through, stenciled on it was Isaiah 40, 31, with a whole verse printed out. I thought, well, that's interesting. I've been having those thoughts, and now somebody gives me one of these. I said, Lord, what are, what are you up to? The next day, I worked a few hours, and I went kind of numb, and I just I couldn't push forward anymore. So I just sat at my desk, and I stared forward blankly, and all at once, my eyes opened up, and I saw a desk ornament. You know, we... We get these desk ornaments, and we have them there for years, and they become part of the furniture, and you don't even know they're there. Have you ever, do you have some of those? That was one of them. I, ne I hadn't seen it for the last couple of years. It just sits there. And I was sitting there, and my eyes, <laughs> it was obviously the Lord doing it, opened my eyes, and I couldn't believe what I was reading. Chiseled, and the face, the stone face of that desk ornament was Isaiah 40:31, completely chiseled out. And I read it. That was the very next day. And I thought, wow, I think somebody's trying to talk to me. The very next day, I was having a meeting, still very, very tired. And I turned, and I have a bullet, bulletin board right over my computer screen. And there was a card with two eagles drawn on it that a woman had given me seven, several months earlier. And printed on, and it was, uh, she had a lovely note on the back written to Fran and I, so that's why there were two eagles, and, uh, and, and written carefully, Isaiah 40:31. Then my daughter walked in, one of my daughters, two daughters, walked in and saw the big photograph, you know, the photo of that eagle and said, where did you guys get this? And we said, well, why? I was like, what's getting your attention? She said, that year in prayer and fasting, the Holy Spirit told me to pray for Dad, Isaiah 40, 31. What I'm talking about is if God took his only son and cast him into the ultimate storm and he cares and loves us that much, don't you think that he will love and care for us and not abandon us even in the storms of life? You see, those are the two pictures in that story that we see. 
He will. On another time, I'll share another one because this one has a different angle to it. But it's again, it's at a struggle level. Uh, it was June 23rd, 2002. It was our wedding anniversary. It was a Sunday. And I was, I was going to preach. And uh, in my Bible reading that morning, I was reading about the Shunammite woman. Remember the Shunammite woman? Elisha had said, you're going to have a, you're gonna have a son. And, and she conceived and she had a son. And then he, as he was growing up, he, he suddenly became sick and he died. And the Shunammite woman went running after Elisha and said, what? Elisha, I mean, you know, out of kings there, like, why did you even get me a son? Just to let him die. And she was distraught. And as I read the story, the Holy Spirit said, your wife is distraught. Because, you see, she conceived a son, and at his conception, gave her a, spoke to her and gave her a vision that one day, that's our youngest son, that one day he would be in ministry and he would minister to a lot of people. And that was a promise. And now, in 2002, he was away from Jesus, basically away from the family. And she was distraught. And the Holy Spirit said, go tell her that in the same way I brought this, I, I brought this boy to life for the Shunammite woman, I'm going to bring to life her son. So I phoned her. I never go to breakfast on a Sunday morning when I'm preaching. Never. I phoned her and I said, let's go for anniversary breakfast. She said, what? <laughs> I said, yes. So we, <laughs> so we went to Smitty's and... Uh, order a breakfast, and then I shared with her the promise out of the story of the Shunammite woman. And the two of us wept. And there's this big puddle on the, you know, they had to come wipe it all <laughs> down, disinfect it. Um, when, when, you, when, you, when God loves and cares for us enough to throw his son into the ultimate judgment. He's saying to us, I love you enough. I'll be in the middle of your storms. And he comes and he loves on us. And the way that you will survive, I'm not saying that all the storms will, it, this was two years, uh, he'd, he'd been away from Jesus for a while already. This was two years before he came back to Jesus. But he came back, <laughs> amen? And God's using him. And what I'm saying is, in the middle of your struggles, what you need is God's love. And not just the intellectual peace. Yes, what we, I mean, what, this is what he did for us, but we also need that experiential side of it when we go to him. And say, God, I can't, I can't handle this struggle. I, I can't handle this storm. And he says, well, then let me love you. And he wraps his arms around and he loves us in different ways. In an experiential way. Amen? There's a lot of you here today. You need to go back to him. Because he wants to tell you something. And I'm going to tell you something. When he says that he loves you, it's very different than when somebody else says to you, God loves you.
It's very different. It's very powerful when he does that. Well, there's one more thing that you need. We've got to move on. If I can find my place. Receive Jesus' wisdom in your storm. There's two things you need. Knowing that Jesus endured the greatest storm to save you helps a whole lot, doesn't it? However, it still doesn't answer the question that lingers on. Why then does he allow me to go through so much suffering and testing and trials? The disciples thought that a true God would love and care for them, and they were right in that, of course. Scripture reiterates over and over that God is love. What they didn't understand was that God's love didn't look like what they expected. We're, all, we're, we're very familiar with the teaching that Jesus went to prepare a place for us. Isn't that true? John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And we take great comfort in that, and we should. You know what we are less familiar with in the church today? That God also pre is preparing us for that place. We always talk about that place he's preparing for us, but we, we don't always talk about the fact that he's preparing us for that place. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 it says, Verse 17 to 18, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you see that? That's incredible. Remember, and I've been saying this to the marketplace leaders because we've been talking about struggles and trials and testings. We, I, not this particular message, but we've been talking about the wisdom behind it, why God allows some of these things. And one of the statements that I keep repeating to them over and over every single week is this, and it's coming up on the screen. Remember that God is more concerned about the line of your eternity than the dot of your present. God is more concerned with the line of your eternity than the dot of your present, and the reason is we're here just for a short time. This isn't, the re this isn't the real deal. This is preparation for the real deal. Heaven on earth one day. Amen? Amen. That's where we're headed. And that's an infinite line of eternity. This is a vapor, the Bible says. It's here and it's gone. Just like that. I'm married now 43 years. I, I, I feel like I just fell in love. And now it's... I was going to say almost over, but I better be careful what I say. <laughs> My wife is going to be weeping or something, or happy, whatever. Um, For example, James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. He's talking about forming us in a certain way. So he says, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may become perfect and complete, etc., etc. Let me just give you an example of it. There's many examples that we could give, but let's use this one, steadfastness. Why is it important? Well, my wife uh, has called me two things in my life that were negative. All the rest have been amazing, like thousands and thousands and thousands. But one time she called me a jerk. <laughs> Put it on her note on my bedstand. <laughs> 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 
one time. <laughs> but one time she called me a quitter in my young, young years. She quit a lot of things. She didn't mean it in a, she wasn't harsh about it or anything. She just said, you're, and I was, I, I was searching. I wasn't sure what I should be doing, and I tried this, and then I tried that. I was in my early 20s. We got married young, and until uh, I figured out what I was going to do. And, uh, and, but that, that, that got to me. And you see, by the time I planted the church in Woodstock, when somebody, and you know the story, so I'm not going to go into that, but when, when this family yelled at us and, treated, and mistreated us so badly, I vowed to God that no one would ever treat, treat me like that again. Of course, I had to break that vow one day, and how could I say it to a God who was willing to die for me? Um, which is ridiculous. And the other problem was I wasn't steadfast. I wouldn't persevere in the middle of trouble. So he stuck me on a truck for three and a half years, away from my family, my marriage, my... You know that whole story. The point being this, that when I came off of that time of discipline, not because he was angry, but because he knew that this is what I would want, I was steadfast. I've been here 21 years. Ha. Huh. <laughs> steadfast. Because here's the problem. I was reviewing a memory verse this morning. And Paul says, I've fought the fight. I have finished the race. Kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the, um, the righteous judge, shall give to me on that day. Paul, in another passage, <laughs> says that he didn't want to be disqualified from the race and lose what was coming to him. If we're not steadfast and we quit halfway through, we lose what we could have had for eternity. Do you see the problem, church? Do you see it? So God says, I got to make you steadfast. <laughs> and for that, he needs struggle to make us steadfast so that we don't lose what we've gained. Amen? Am I ever glad that he was willing, to, that he loved me that much, that he was that wise to allow the struggle in my life so that I could finish 21 years? <laughs> I am so great. You have no idea how excited I sometimes say, God, I can't believe it. I didn't quit. And I know what's coming because of it. If we're faithful, that's why we need... That's why we need this. Matthew 3 says, I baptize you with the water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with what? With what? Church, with what? Fire? Are you serious? <laughs> I hear a lot of, a lot of church people all over the world talking about how Jesus would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and they put the period there. The period doesn't come after the Holy Spirit. It says, and with fire. Now, certainly, it's referring to the unrepentant. It includes that, the unrepentant and uh, the eternal uh, fires of judgment, that kind of stuff. Certainly, there's that element of it. But it is also for the repentant. 
because he refines us with fire. And we see that in Malachi chapter 3, verse 2, I believe it is, where he says, for he's like a refiner's fire fuller of soap. That's why we sing that song, refiner's fire, I want heart's desire. I'm going to join the choir. <laughs> Just threatening you. <laughs> James says, you can ask for wisdom in handling your trials. Look what he says in James chapter 1. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I was reviewing this one this morning too. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We read that so far. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all uh, without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting, for the one who does doubts is like a wave of the sea, is driven, tossed for the wind by the wind. For that person will not suppose that he, he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I want to go back to that path. Verse 5, if any of you lacks what? If any of you lacks what? Let him ask who? God, who gives generously to all without reproach. Now here's the problem. Notice that James says that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously. And of course we know that's true. I pray for wisdom all the time. I need so much of it. I'm desperate. <laughs> when you're average, you're desperate. Is it true? <laughs> do, do, you need, do you need wisdom? I need it. I pray for it a lot. And the Bible talks about that. But that's not the context of this passage. The context of this, where he says, let him ask of God... Ask, you know, if any of you lacks wisdom. The context of it is in the midst of trial and testing and tribulations. Because he goes on right to verse 12. If you go to verse 12, and we don't have time to go there right now, you go to verse 12 and he picks and, and he says it right over again. He talks about perseverance and trials and testings and stuff. It's right in the middle of that. He said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. What he's saying is, in the middle of your struggles and your storms, not only do you need God's love, but you need his wisdom. Because sometimes he wants to show you what the purposes are. Now I just, you know, we just talked about one. I mean, I've got 26 on a paper I did. And we've been slowly, methodically going through it in uh, marketplace leaders. Um, but uh, we just looked at one. Sometimes he wants to show you what the purpose is in the middle of your struggle or storm. Many times not. Job didn't have it. Abraham didn't have it right away till after the fact. Many times it's after the fact because that's part of the test. Will you trust him even when you're blind? But even when he does it that way, you may need wisdom to navigate through your struggle or storm. Is that true? And he says, come to me, to God who gives generously to all. And I'll give you wisdom in the middle of it, how to navigate. He will love you experientially if you go to him, and he will give you wisdom, practical wisdom in the middle of it. And, of course, uh, we see that out of the passage that Chris used last week, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 to 10, where Paul was praying, praying, praying. God said, no, don't pray about that anymore. You're not, the thorn is not coming out to keep you from being conceited because of these passingly great revelations. 
there was the purpose. God told him in the middle of it, you're sticking with your struggle because I don't want you to lose your reward. If you become conceited, you lose your reward. Paul says, whoa, give me the thorn back. Do you see? God care, he is more concerned with the line of your eternity than he is with the dot of your present. And of course, in Philippians 1, we have another one, and, but we don't have time uh, to look at that. So this is how I want to end, with these few words. Before the journey across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus had been teaching the multitudes when he said, let's go over to the other side. That was in verse 35. God has a plan for your life and for mine. And he says, let's go over to the other side. I'm going to get you there. But as he's taking you on your, uh, on your respective journeys, and as he's taking me on my journey, there will be storms along the way. But God is saying, Yahweh, Jesus is saying by his spirit, I'm going to get you there safe and sound. Struggles, storms, trials, testings, you're going to the other side. Nothing will thwart my plan for your life. Nothing. And I don't want you panicking in the middle of it. I don't want you to abandon me because of it, in the middle of it. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. I loved you so much that I threw my son into the sea for you. And I will love you and give you the wisdom you need to make it to the other side. Be assured that he will travel with you. He will never leave you or forsake you because he loves you. And you will get to your destination safely. You need not worry. Oh, Jesus. Thank you for the promise of your word. Thank you that we have a living Savior who loves us so much, who is willing to die for us. And thank you, Jesus, that you love us in the middle of our storms. If there's anyone here who does not know Jesus right now, I'd like you to follow in this prayer. I'd like to pray for you. But you follow in this prayer, and why don't you receive him? He can get you through to your heavenly destination. And he can change your life. Follow me in this prayer. Dear God, thank you for bringing me here today. Thank you, thank you for showing me your heart for me today. Thank you for showing me that Jesus endured the ultimate storm so that I wouldn't have to face eternal justice. I ask you to forgive my sins and I give you my life in return. Take it and do with it as you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, 
please visit us at myselfland.com.